Hi, I'm Grant Wall, and welcome to the Planet Football Podcast, where I go in-depth with the most intriguing people in the world of soccer. In this episode, I'm joined by my friend Andy Markovitz, a popular University of Michigan professor who has written several books on sports, including Offside, Soccer, and American Exceptionalism. We talk about his thoughts on the World Cup on and off the field in a conversation that I think you'll enjoy. Just a quick reminder, it's a huge help if you subscribe to, rate, and review the podcast. It helps people find us. Onward! Got a fun podcast interview this week. It's Andy Markovitz, who is coming on again. He was on a few months ago. He's one of my favorite people in the soccer world. University of Michigan professor, author of many books, including Offside, Soccer, and American Exceptionalism, which you should check out. We happen to be in Ann Arbor, Michigan, in Andy's backyard gazebo here. It's my first trip ever to Ann Arbor. We're here. I'm not even working this weekend. I'm just here to join him to watch uh, Liverpool Man United, my first trip to the big house. Uh, Andy, great to be here with you. Thank you so much for having me on and great to have you here. Yeah, it's funny because uh, I'm staying at a hotel in town here where Liverpool's team is actually staying. Boo. <laughs> and and Andy, as if you listen to our first podcast, big Manchester United fan wearing a Man U uh, jersey right now and was wearing it as we left the hotel where I'm staying with all these Liverpool fans outside who literally started booing him. It, it didn't get too hairy, did it? No, 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 no. They were waiting for the team which and the team bus, which is this... Amazing bus is something you never walk alone. And and I, I wonder whether this is an American bus that they had or – yeah. So the, the fans were all there uh, waiting for the team. But I, I was there to pick you up, which was wonderful. Um, so lots to talk about here because you and I were in touch all throughout the World Cup. Uh, you were watching my show on Fox, which I appreciated. You had thoughts on everything that was happening. And – this isn't the most organized thing on my part here, but I just want to let's get into some topics that were coming up during and after the mm -hmm. World Cup. Mm -hmm. um, and one of the things that's a, a, still a story, and you have a, a big knowledge base of Germany mm -hmm. and culture in Germany, mm -hmm. is this Mesut Ozil situation and what happened to Germany during the World Cup itself, where they went out in the group stage as the defending champions. And what's happened with Mesut Ozil in the German media and the German Federation, and he's now saying he's not going to play for Germany again as long as he feels the subject of racism. Right. So what are your thoughts on this? Oh, God. Uh, <sighs> Do we have five hours? <laughs> um, look, um, my thoughts on this are many fold but one uh, that comes to mind is his last sentence or one of his last sentences in his uh, wonderful um, communique which interestingly by the way and tellingly and also to the chagrin of many in germany was only published in english correct I he saw that. only issued this in english um in which he basically says um that um when we win, I'm German. When we lose, I'm an immigrant. And what comes to mind uh, was Einstein's famous dictum of, of uh, when I do something good or people like me, then uh, the Germans call me German and the French call me European. 
And when I do something that they don't like me, then the French call me German and the Germans call me a Jew. And so basically success universalizes and 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 failure particularizes. And this was very stark now with the German team, but it's not only with the German team. I actually, we can go into, um, after discussing the German, <laughs> German situation, also into other forms of um, bad scenes that I detected in this World Cup, which again confirmed to me that uh, these are um, still... Um, um, sort of uh, deeply troubling social constructs for me of of a retrograde macho and also of, of of a form of nationalism which is really bad and we can talk about the Croatian team and other things but let's get back to Mesut Özil um, what um, uh, sort of what comes to mind here is first of all the difference between Özil and Gündogan mm-hmm. which I find interesting I mean, uh, or let's briefly say what happened. Özil and Gündogan meet uh, the president and more or less dictator of Turkey, uh, or what I would call an illiberal democrat. They call it illiberal uh, dem- uh, democracy, uh, coined by the Hungarian uh, pal of Erdogan, a guy called Orban. And this is a new trend in politics, which is a very disturbing one, uh, including in our country. Uh, okay. And um, basically, so Erdogan, I hate to call him a a dictator, but he is basically one. Certainly uh, not an enlightened guy. Um, And he's in London, and in some context, he gets these two Turkish Germans to uh, be in a photo with him, and uh, this becomes a big issue. Uh, What also, what what they did um, was... And I think that's a problem. Uh, Özil, I think, in his jersey, which was an Arsenal jersey, um, dedicated uh, this to mein president, to my president, uh, Erdogan, which, of course, it's not his president. His president uh, is Frank-Walter Steinmeier, the president of Germany. Uh, Mesut Özil was born in Gelsenkirchen. By the way, Gelsenkirchen is actually interesting, has a disproportionate amount of great German soccer players, mm-hmm. including in current in the current team, yeah. who are actually from Gelsenkirchen, Neuer, yeah. uh, 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 Draxler. So that's a, that's another di- another different topic we can talk about. Um, so he's German, but in a world that is still most of Europe, and by the way, not the United States and not Canada, and not these countries in which citizenship is Jew solely rather than the blood Jew sanguinous. In these countries like Germany and Turkey, belonging is not a passport. Belonging is this, it's the blood. It's a form of, 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 uh, of um, particularism, what the German call Völkisch, dimension which goes way beyond your legal and political status. So, it is in fact true that to many Germans, the fact that Mesut Özil was born in Germany and has a German passport doesn't quite make him a German. i never forget 2006... Um, I'm in Dortmund watching Germany play Poland in the World Cup. 
And the Germans had an excellent right-wing player, uh, not right-wing politically, uh, right. right-wing. David Adonko, right? Oh, my God. You yeah. are so good. Thank you for helping me because I wanted to only say <laughs> I remember David. And David Adonkor was playing for the German team. And I remember next to me, all these German fans, and they weren't right-wing nuts. They were not, you know, neo-Nazi skinheads. They were, you know, just regular German soccer fans constantly screaming, you are no German. Hmm. Du bist kein Deutscher. To hmm. this David, last name again? Odonkor. Odonkor, yes. A black player. A bla exactly. That's my point. I'm sorry, I should have said that. In, in, he's a black player. Yeah. Meaning that to... Germans, the notion of an first of all, there's no such thing as a hyphenation yet in Germany. Mm. There's no notion of of yeah, there is a Turco German or Portuguese German or Af really doesn't quite yet exist in that same way. And to most of these European countries, by the way, not only Germany, look at what that Swedish players, please help me with his name, who uh, committed the sure. foul, who uh, committed the that foul led to Kroos's that goal led to Kroos's goal, yeah. what, what kind of abuse he got from Sweden. Oh, so wonderful, goody two-shoes Sweden, whom all American enlightened Americans love as this beautiful, social democratic, universalistic, uh, holy place. Well, it's not a holy place. And it certainly ain't when it comes to Losing, and it certainly ain't when it comes to the stuff of guts. Then the Swedes are as bad as the Germans or anybody else. Okay, so I think this, and he was also berated. So my point is that the Uzes situation may be more highlighted because of what he did afterwards than the situation itself. So clearly. Had Germany advanced this quarter or to the semifinal, you and I would not be talking about this. Right. Okay, had they won the final, he would be a German hero. Uh, but by exiting so woefully and unexpectedly, people, of course, are very angry. And what they conjured up was this image of Özil and Gundogan basically being non-Germans because they, uh, uh, one of them extolled or mentioned the Turkish president as my president, which was a mistake, and it's not his president. But it's, it's, it's sort of a false equivalence, right? If, if we're, you know, he made a mistake posing for the photo, but that has nothing to do with the, oh, the horrible oh, oh, stuff that oh, he gets. Oh, absolutely. I'm just trying to, yeah. oh, no, 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 please. I don't, I don't, I'm just trying to, 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 to give the genealogy as yeah, it were. No, yeah. no, 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 no. I, I mean, um, the, and actually I followed this. I mean, the, the language used immediately after they lost uh, was, Unbelievable. And this was not only the right wing. It really bled into deep into the German establishment. Uh, this whole narrative of that we're not a German team anymore. That how far can multiculturalism go? What is it ruining? Look what it does. Look, this is bespeaks from Merkel's weakness. It kind of conjured up a whole context of, of Germany's, what, who is a German? How mm. can it be a multi? And it, so it was really, really bad. And really, by the way, propelled by Germany's leading newspaper, Bild Zeitung, right. um, where 
very quickly, uh, let's be clear. Uh, the notion of what constitutes German football really starts being challenged precisely with this David exactly and 2006 and if there's anything one thing that I will always hold very dear about Jürgen Klinsmann very very important um, I'm not going to say anything about how he performed as a co uh, the, the American national team's coach but he modernized the, this uh, this horrible, macho, awful, retrograde DFB, uh, which was a deeply nationalistic, uh, macho world. And he was actually attacked for this. And so was Yogi Löw. And they both, I mean, there's, there's this discourse in Germany of something called Schwulenfußball, meaning gay football. In other words, not manly enough. Mm. And Yogi Löw, by the way, gets all kinds of... Uh, of, of, of nonsense for um, uh, doing ads for Nivea, the, the, mm. the hand cream. Yeah. You know, what? A soccer, you know, football coach does hand cream? In other words, in every one of these countries, including in the United States, the hegemonic sports, which create sports culture on a mass basis, still remain the domain of men and still remain the domain of of heterosexuality and still remain the domain of deep nationalism. And there's no difference. And so, in fact, what happened with Özil it was that this came to the fore with this reaction to the German team's loss, and he became the poster child of it. Um, when you look at Uli Hoeneß's utterances, they are... Chief executive of Bayern Munich. Chief executive of Bayern Munich, for, former German great by the way, from the North, actually, uh, 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 and then Bayern player. Um, I don't want to use words on your show. But, I mean, it's, it's, it's absolutely despicable. He basically couches uh, the whole Özil thing in legitimating it as uh, because Özil basically was an awful player and that he hadn't had a tackle since 2014 and that he, uh, meaning Ernest, knew how to beat Arsenal always by playing to Ozil's side because he was basically completely, just an awful player. So kind of blaming the whole thing into soccer terms and this has become very common. Um, and I find that really, really problematic and uh, I... Um, I, I, I think that uh, this uh, shows you how, um, how tenuous the whole notion of multiculturalism is, how tenuous this thing about the, the German Willkommenskultur, welcoming culture, where the Germans prided themselves on letting in these million of, million of refugees, which is, by the way, a huge thing, and it's right. a wonderful thing. And from Merkel deserves eternal credit for this, for standing up to this, and in fact, almost y losing her political life over this. Uh, that once the team loses the veneer of 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 uh, cosmopolitanism, the veneer of acceptance really is out the window, and it immediately resorts to a form of blaming of blaming the foreigner and that you are not a German. Uh, and, you know, I think it's ho horrible. I, I, I fear that, uh, that this is very widespread. Uh, 
that um, the, the French actually have a great expression. There's something called what they call pays légal and pays réel, meaning the legal country, in other words, what's acceptable, yeah. what you can talk, and then the pays réel, what really is talk, what the Germans call pub talk, what you can speak in over the Stammtisch, they say, over what happens at the- Sounds vaguely like locker room talk. Exactly. Locker room talk. Exactly. And what you can, and it's quite clear that in locker room talk or at the pub, I am quite convinced that most Germans do not see these multicultural Germans as real Germans. Hmm. And they only see them at that if they in fact win. There is in fact even a narrative, by the way, that the 2014 World Cup, which the Germans won, was sort of won despite Löw, hmm. or kind of opposite Löw, or opposite this sort of uh, uh, cosmopolitanism, this what I, again, what I give Jürgen Klinsmann so much credit for, for which he got so much flack of, you know, introducing psychologists and playing volleyball and basically opening up this sort of macho, uh, old style, uh, uh, brutal world of established football, which, by the way, exists in England, you know, the Terry Butcher and all that. They, we all extol this. It exists in the United States. Uh, you know, we hear this North Carolina coach the other day saying that, uh, uh, you know, the United States will lose its global positioning because football is now being undermanned by, you know, I don't know, the CTE discussion and sort of basically it has everything to do with a form of worry that uh, the old establishment of, of, of sort of uh, male hegemonic power, cultural power is being threatened. And that's what this is. Yeah. I mean, it is of a piece in a different way with, I think, some of the stuff that we looked at in positive terms about the French team winning and being such a a multi-ethnic team and representing modern France. It does make me wonder if France were to go out in the group stage of the next World Cup, if that might get flipped in the way that we've seen it happen with Germany. Absolutely. Uh, Grant, let's do a little soccer history. 1996, the French team goes out in the Euro, okay? And uh, you know this much better than I do, but it was pretty much heavily overlapping with the French team of 1998, okay? All right. First time I'd seen Zidane play was the 1996. There you go. There you go, okay? So if you look at the 1996 reception, it was completely... Reception. Who are these guys? They are not French. Who is singing the anthem? Mm. Why are they not singing the anthem? Um, Immediate. 1998, they become multicultural France. They become, we're cool, this is it. Um, 2000, when was the Evra? When was the, when they go out and the whole team? Uh, there's a, was that in South Africa in 2010? 2010. 2010. Things went wrong exactly. inside the French exactly. camp. Exactly. Yeah. In 2010, yeah. it gets, like, things go wrong in the French camp. And there was a, quite a strong 
racial overtone to this. Very, I forget now the, the details, you probably know it better, but I remember there was a very strong thing about that these guys are not playing for France. And So I'm actually delighted that the French won, although I would have preferred the Belgians, but that's a different story. Um, it's wonderful that the French, of course, uh, see this as, you know, this multiculturalism, but this is uh, paper thin. This is uh, ice in Miami in uh, the, the, in, in August. I mean, I just don't trust it. Sure, it's wonderful, uh, precisely because they won. Uh, I, By the way, just parenthetically speaking, I was actually quite disturbed about the Trevor Noah's comment, uh, comments about Why? the French. Because he made, he actually played into a form of particularism that I dislike. Uh, he actually claimed this to be an African victory. It's a French victory. I'm, a, you know, they are French. They are French citizens. They are the citizens of France, and they should be extolled as multicultural French citizens. I understand two sides of this, though, because on the one hand, that's totally true, and in some ways, it's sharing the logic of right wingers who are saying that these are not French; these are Africans. But at the same time, there's another side of this, which is, and I go back, I mentioned this on the podcast a week or two ago, where Vincent Company, the Belgian uh, with Congolese background, uh, once said that he feels 100% Belgian and 100% Congolese, and it's possible to feel both. And so that, I think, is where Trevor Noah is coming from. Maybe. I'm, I just... Uh given maybe because of the Ozil context and because yeah. of the worry of the right wing, I was just uncomfortable with that. Yeah. I just want, this is, you know, a, a French victory and they are French and they sing the Marseillaise and they're French citizens. And the rest is how, how, how Vincent company feels again, pays legal and pays réel. how he feels and how he articulates his private emotions is perfectly fine. But publicly, they are representing he plays for Belgium. And um, anyway, that's I, I, precisely because of my worry of what went, what transpired in Germany. Maybe it's colored by that yeah. and colored by what the Ozil situation is. I was a little sort of taken aback about uh, Trevor Noah even saying something like, and I'm only obviously I'm not quoting it, but something like, um, uh, you don't get such a great tan in the south of France or something like that. Now, which, which, again, to me, and of course uh, he can say that, but to me is a form of racialization that I personally feel uncomfortable with above all in the European context. Now, one thing that my friend Laurent Dubois, who's a professor at Duke, said recently, he pointed out that Lilian Turam, the former French 98 winner, had actually made sure to say again publicly was as recently as just a few years ago, the French Federation was caught in discussions trying to limit the number of black players in French national team programs. Disgusting. Because their reasoning was was that the FIFA one-time switch rule, yes, which had been put in around 2009, 2010 had had a big impact on French youth national team players later switching to play for African countries with their one-time switch once they were no longer 
automatic call-ins for the senior national team. Yes. And, but this literally happened with the French Federation. <laughs> I mean, they were trying to limit, talking about limiting black players in France. And that was not long ago. I just, I'm, as, as you were saying, maybe you didn't hear it, but I, I think it's disgusting. Yeah. It's basically, what rem this reminds me of is basically, which you, you're, you're a big college basketball guy. You can tell me that it was uh, until the late 60s or something that you basically never played three black players on uh, on the other uh, on the opponent's uh, court in other words you only had two black players you limited your african american players uh, it's, it's 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 a form of of it's a, it's racism i mean it's as yeah. simple as that yeah. so if the Fran I'm, and and again by the way i'm not trying I, as I said, I am quite convinced, of course, I, it's, there's no counterfactual here because uh, it didn't happen, but I'm quite convinced that had France gone out the way Germany did, we would be having the same discussion. I'm not sure whether there would have been a Mesut Özil equivalent, meaning the equivalent would be that a um, French player or African origin would have met his... Uh, would have met a president of the country of his birth, or actually, that's not true because it's well, the country of his parents' birth. That's right. the point where the, the duality is not, in fact, already questioned. People always bring up the a, a parallel between Lothar Matthäus, uh, one of my most disliked players of all time. In a recent podcast, yes. I just hate a guy. I hate the guy. But Lord, Lothar Matthäus standing next to uh, Vladimir Putin and yeah. that he never, that no one is doubting this. Of course no one is doubting this because it's not an issue about Erdogan and Putin, but it's an issue of whether the Germans see Özil or Gundogan as real Germans. That's the issue here, okay? The issue is not whether Erdogan is a nice guy and Putin is an, a not a nice guy. They're both not nice guys, and they both are politically very objectionable. But that's not what people worry about. What they worry about in this case is not that Özil associated with a dislikable guy, which I think would be a much better, but that in fact by his association with Erdogan, he actually bespeaks his or this is testimony to his Turkishness and not to his Germanness. And this came out in the post thing constantly, constantly. You know, thank you. I mean, some people publish right afterwards. Thank you, Özil. For, for, I hope you are proud now after the loss, after the exit, after South Korea. In other words, you've done your stuff. You betrayed us Germans. That's what you've done. Uh, frightening stuff. So let's talk about other World Cup stuff that stood out to you. And I remember plenty of emails during the tournament. Were there any particular storylines you wanted to talk about that uh, you, you watched most of the games? Yes. Um, you watched, watched most of our shows. Yes. Um, and I think we were talking earlier that this was one of the best World Cups on the field that we've seen in terms of good games – not a bunch of zero zeros, uh, lots of goals scored late in games, uh, some pretty impressive performances. Um, were there anything, was there anything you wanted to talk about in particular? 
Well, I mean, we could talk about the the football, which was, I agree, uh, some of it was just wonderful and, um, uh, you know, captivating. And I mean, Argentina, France or Spain, Portugal, or uh, even as we talked before, um, you know, uh, Belgium, Japan. I mean, that ending was just glorious. Yeah, uh, um, yeah I mean, maybe because I'm getting older and I'm a curmudgeon. I, I mean, I still, um, and partly because, of course, I'm a, in my day job, I'm a professor of comparative <laughs> politics and European politics is I, I still am um, always worried or kind of look at things that um, are potentially not uh, uh, endearing to me as sort of a convinced liberal Democrat. Um, you know, the... Uh, the two Swiss players uh, and their taunting of the Serbians, uh, I found uh, troublesome. Uh, just as I found troublesome that there were Serbian fans walking around with uh, um, uh, Mladic uh, t-shirts, right. sweatshirts, right. Uh, Ratko Mladic, the butcher of Srebrenica uh, sweatshirts. Um, just as I found uh, problematic that the Croatian team, after their glorious 3-0 victory against Argentina, phenomenal, absolutely yeah. phenomenal. I mean, my God, Luka Modric's goal, what can you say? Um, were, um, you know, celebrating to, amuse, to the music of a band called Thompson, which is a... Um, far-right uh, uh, band in Croatia extolling places like Jazenovac, which is kind of the Croatian Auschwitz, if you will, where the Ustasha regime killed, we don't know, but probably about 400,000 people, mainly Serbs and Jews. In other words, that there is always in this fandom, or there is always an edge which is um, precisely because all fandoms are a form of, a, you know, emphasizing your own identity the most you can. And this is, by the way, my dear Grant, this is why I hate national football. I watched 55 games or whatever, and I will always watch the World Cup. I've attended five World Cups. I can't wait. I hope I'm still around for the World Cup in the United States and Canada and Mexico. Uh, but ultimately, there's something about it, which is precisely what this podcast is about, that I hate. Mm -hmm. uh, namely, where the us always, at some point, extends into a form of collective, or which has some nastiness to it, that I find objectionable. Uh, which is ultra-nationalistic, slash fascist slash chauvinist slash by the way chauvinist in both sense of the term the old sense the way i learned about chauvinism meaning alternationalism and the way my students know the word chauvinism namely male chauvinism right. okay so both chauvinisms play a major role in this and this is much less the case with clubs of course, that doesn't mean that there are no right-wing clubs. I hate Lazio, but that's a different story. It's one club, and it's not about Italian history, and it's not about constructing a collective, a national collective that invokes an ugly part of your history in order to diminish your opponent, okay? In other words, that's, and this is what worries me here all the time, 
And maybe again, I'm, I'm just, you know, an old irrelevant professor and who cares? I mean, and, and, but I, I just find that always, I found it very bad with Shakiri doing that. Right. Um, Shakiri and Chaka. And Chaka, exactly. Um, and interestingly, by the way, I think in contrast to West European teams, interestingly, the, in, in all these other, in all teams, it's the fans who are ugly. So with Mexico, it's the puto, it's the fans who are ugly, not the teams, not the players, or at least in Eastern Europe, especially still the remnants of the old Yugoslavia, it's the players who are part of it still. So maybe these conflicts were just too recent, but the players play part of this sort of edginess of, of, of invoking you know, uh, concentration camps and all kinds of stuff which has no relevance today in order to basically heighten your allegiance and to diminish your opponent, to right. kind of, to, to, to show him that, you know, to, to extol a murderer who, uh, you know, to walk around with Mladic uh, yeah. sweatshirts is, is, is disgusting. I yeah. mean, what can I say? Yeah. Um, you're, book soccer and american exceptionalism really gets into the the history of how soccer in america has been treated in the media here um and i'm curious now you know you've watched this world cup on american television you know what 200 300 hours probably yes. all told which is wonderful um how are you seeing american media talking about presenting soccer compared to what you know it was like in the past. Oh, it's grand. It's, <laughs> I mean, you didn't exist 10 years ago. I mean, I, no, I'm sorry, you ex existed <laughs> as a person, but, <laughs> but, you, but uh, it's a completely, it's day and night. Let me start by this. Uh, I, there's one thing that actually I dislike uh, about parts of the American soccer community which due to its sort of insecurity or whatever is hypercritical of anything that the American and the English speaking American media do. Mm -hmm. I find this bad and, and, and objectionable. I have nothing against American accents. You don't have any legitimacy just because you're British. Um, I find that problematic. Um, so I actually very much enjoyed, uh, watching you and watching the Fox um, broadcasts. Um, I mean, some of it were better than others. Uh, but on the whole, I, I thought it was excellent. I, I, I enjoyed it. I did not have to resort to turn down the, 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 the <laughs> volume or not listen to it because um, some people have American accents uh, that somehow, you, and you have to listen to the BBC to be authentic. This whole notion of authenticity, maybe because I wasn't born here. Hmm. I, I, but I, I find this a big problem for American soccer. This constant search for authenticity, which can only be, I wish we wouldn't speak English. Uh, that, that would be so, so much better because we would not have this bloody uh, battle over the word soccer. By the way, let me tout a wonderful book by my two colleagues, uh, Stefan Szymanski and uh, Silke Weineck, who 
wrote a wonderful book about how this term, the word soccer, has become literally one of the worst schimpfworts, one of the worst pejorative terms in the in in England. Uh, <laughs> it's 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 like a four letter word or worse, um, uh, precisely because it's a form of sort of trying to separate itself. It's basically Freud's narcissism of the small differences. That's what this is. And I actually, so I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't suffer from this. I think the media have been, I mean, soccer has grown phenomenally. It is, look, um, let's drift away and talk about your competition. I mean, here, here are Tony Kornheiser and Mike Wilbon. Tony, Mike Wilbon actually knows a bit about soccer. Tony right. Kornheiser prides himself on knowing nothing about soccer. <laughs> And this is, is, which actually I find also in some ways objectionable. It's okay you don't know anything about soccer, but don't pride yourself on <laughs> ignorance. However, whom do they have on? Zlatan, okay? Right. So they have on, you know, so they have ESPN had um, your constantly top 10 plays uh, of goals. They, they comment on it. So it is, in fact, has crept into the American in the Markovitsian sense, into the American sports space. It yeah. is part of culture, and that is tremendous. What I worry about with, because I always, as you probably can tell, I'm always <laughs> worried about something. So in this case, I'm worried about that I'm not quite sure which soccer is, const is construed in American culture. And I worry a little bit that it not, it's still not MLS enough. In other words, it's the, the premiership. It's a, it's it's the it's and, and that's a, that's a, it's a very difficult gig for MLS to kind of come into its own uh, when it's so easy these days to see every game on your in your on your in the palm of your hand. Sure. And I think that's a, that's a very important discussion to have. Um, but soccer as a construct, in terms of look um, during the World Cup. Um, I would say there was not one day that not someone who knew nothing about the game would not talk to me about this. Mm. Um, you know, auto mechanic, uh, 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 our vet, uh, you know, people who are, uh, who would just say, oh, what are this World Cup is going on and did you see this and that? So clearly, now of course the World Cup, I, I've talked about in an article what I call soccer's Olympianization in America, mm. that it's like the Olympics, Every it's a quadrennial event. But I think it's been more than this. And with it's still a quadrennial event, but it's starting to bleed into much more. Um, tomorrow, we're going to go see Liverpool United. Um, again, uh, two, of course, pedigreed clubs. Uh, but uh, I bet you that, you know, of the... I'm still hoping that over 100,000 people will show, although I worry. Um, I don't think that the, the record with Real will be broken but um most of these are americans i mean most mm -hmm. of these are they're not uh, you know they haven't flown in from liverpool or manchester these are americans who have now become fans of two entities trust me that when i started even teaching at michigan which is 1999 never mind my earlier periods at boston university and harvard and wesleyan and before uh i bet you virtually none of my students would have known about Manchester United. 
I mean, they may have known about David Beckham by dint of Victoria Beckham or some some such, but they probably wouldn't have. And they certainly wouldn't have known anything about Liverpool other than that it's the city where the Beatles are from. But now they do. Now you, so, you know, it's it's really coming along and uh, I am convinced that it's going to be, uh, you know, it will enter an American, the American sports space and become part of American sports culture. One other thing is that, at least here in the U.S., I think the the public looks at the World Cup not as a quadrennial event, but a twice every four years event because of the Women's World Cup taking place less than a year from now. And you and I, I remember, had a wonderful meal together in Dresden in Germany on the day that we both were at uh, the very famous uh, USA-Brazil Women's World Cup quarterfinal where Abby Wambach scored in the 122nd minute. Yes. And the U.S. won on penalties. Megan Rap- Rapinoe's phenomenal yeah, cross. Yeah. yeah, unbelievable. Yeah, unbelievable. Um, and so I, I know you follow women's soccer as well, and you know, we have this Women's World Cup coming. Everyone expects the U.S. to qualify for this World Cup uh, as the defending champion. You don't want to assume anything. Um, and it will be a slightly different World Cup if they're there in 2019 than it was in 2018 without a U.S. men's team yes. at that World Cup. When you think about the U.S. women's team these days, what do you think about? Oh, I think about how far, what pioneers they were and are. In, in fact, here, the United States is in the pioneering role. What I find so amazing is that now it's starting to bleed into England, mm-hmm. where when I talked about women's soccer in 99 and 2004, I remember I was teaching, I mean, giving lectures at the LSC. They looked at me like yet another <laughs> form of American uh, abomination. I mean, like <laughs> soccer, the word soccer. You are cultural... You know, you are cultural Huns. You are, a, you know, a, you're an abomination. You are completely undermining this holy grail called football by a introducing this horrible American term, which of course ain't an American term. And second, the women play. What is this? Just get out of here. And it's changing. Mm. It really is changing. Where did I read Spain? I just read in Spain they're now introducing a two-tiered league in women's football. Wonderful. And this is all because of Brandy Chastain and Julie Foudy and and Mia Hamm and all these amazing pioneer women, uh, you know, who 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 started this. And so I actually um, I, I'm I'm a huge fan. Of course, I, I actually will go to that World Cup. Um, um, which, and again, I will never forget the, the 2011 one where I more or less followed the, the American women. And I will never forget that we lost to Japan, which was very, very painful in right. this final in Frankfurt. Um, so uh, it's a great thing. Uh, there, of course, it's dominated by the national team. I must say that even though I'm a huge fan of women's soccer, I don't follow the domestic league. And I think I'm not the only one. And this is a big issue. And it's about an, it's about the, the question in general whether women uh, can produce hegemonic sports culture. They certainly 
are participants in it as players and are completely seen as great stars and athletic uh, prodigies in it. But is it possible for uh, it to become a daily discussion? Okay. And it hasn't happened in the WNBA. It hasn't happened in, in, in women's soccer. It may, uh, but I just don't know. I mean, it's a very, very difficult issue. And don't forget that the women's national team is really about a form of Olympianization. We're, the, the why they will, it would be a huge thing in the United States is because they wear USA on their jersey. Okay. In other words, it's a. It's like we're rooting for the women uh, shot putters, or the women snowboarders, or the women any or or men's in the Olympics, because they are. We identify in this case with a form of national uh, adherence to it, but that in and of itself does not mean that we will that that translates into a love of the game itself. I, I do think that applies to a lot of the fans of the Women's, women's World Cup who follow that U.S. team but don't follow the U.S. team at other times when they're playing. Though I do think they have a pretty significant fan base now that will follow the but, U.S. national team. But that's national the national team. team. Yeah, the yeah, national yeah, yeah, team. Yeah, yeah. I'm but, talking about club teams. Yeah, But yeah. at club level, clearly the NWSL, there's a much bigger gap between that and the national team in terms of popularity than there is between, say, MLS and the U.S. men's national oh. team. And so does that reflect not enough investment does that reflect other things that are are happening like you're wearing a manchester united shirt right now they are finally finally introducing this yes. year yes. a women's team for manchester united on the Shameful. professional level Shameful. And it's taken forever um clearly arsenal chelsea man city have invested more and more in their women's teams in recent years real madrid still does not have a women's team barcelona does um, you know, at Man City, I've had Carly Lloyd tell me that they are able to use the women's team, the same exact facilities that the men's team uses there. It's an amazing facility at Bayern Munich. They have a women's team, but they do not use yes. the same facilities yes. that the men's team uses. Yes. So it's, it's different in different places. No, no, but, 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 but Grant, I'm actually, in this case, I'm talking not about the athletes. I'm not talking right. about the sports producers, but the consumers. Right. In other words, will now the, the, the ideal situation for me will be that if Man City, let's talk about the hated Man City now, the, the, the noisy neighbors, as we used to call them, uh, very noisy lately, um, the noisy neighbors with winning 100 points um, last year, uh, when they fill uh, the Etihad, I don't know how many, 60,000, whatever it is, something like that, 60,000, for the men, when will we see 60,000 for with the women playing? Okay, that's the question. And I... Doubt, I mean, it certainly will not happen in my lifetime, and I actually doubt whether it will happen in your lifetime. Okay, That's the issue. Mm. Um, and, and this has a lot of many, many reasons um, um, that are, again, ultimately historical also. And back to our original, uh, you know, the, 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 what we started out with is that, look, these soccer or baseball, all these, these major constructs are really part of the 19th century in some ways. And they are really are constructs of a, of a 
place in time, which they were created in with industrialization, with the rise and the the the, the gelling of hypernationalism. They were completely male structures, and it takes a long time. These are very sticky institutions because they also have the beauty of it is called tradition. And we don't want to get rid of that tradition. We want to hang on to this. And part of the tradition is wonderful. Part of it is what we talked about it before, which is actually hyper-nationalistic, chauvinistic, all kinds of ugly stuff. Okay, It's interesting, I, too, though, I would say, like, if you look back in the early 20th century, there was, there was women's soccer in England that yes. drew big crowds, and then it became outlawed. Outlawed, outlawed. <laughs> completely and, outlawed for decades. Yes, and in Germany, they, we couldn't play until 1970. I mean, look, it's a very, very difficult thing. I, for example, followed these two uh, incidents of these two women reporters, uh, soccer reporters, one of them for the BBC. Uh, Vicky Evans, I think her name was, or something like that. I, f- I forget her name now. And the, 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 the German woman who, uh, Neumann, I think. And uh, the flack that they immediately received by virtue of being women. Okay, I, uh, you know, during the, this World Cup, during the World Cup, yeah. okay, as, as commentators. Yeah. I mean, I actually wrote a book on this called "Sportista: Female Fandom in the United States," in which I actually have a whole chapter on women reporters, and the flack that they get or got and still do, uh, just the mere fact that they have a female voice. In, I mean, it's just I actually looked at some of the emails they get. It's just insane about don't dare talk about my baseball. How can you? And it's the same thing. So, in other words. These constructs are still part of a tradition which has some wonderful parts, but some very, very ugly ones. And, um, and uh, you know, I, I, I just, uh, you know, it, 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 it will take just a very, very long time for women's team sports to have the same consumptive power to, as men's team sports do. Yeah. I do think it's worth pointing out in that context of response to women broadcasting men's World Cup games that Ali Wagner didn't get the as much of the negative stuff that you're talking about that those European women got. And she was fantastic. Oh, but Grant, big difference. The big difference is that in the United States, she would have gotten this had it been Beth Mowens for American football. In other words, soccer on that level... You may not want to hear this, but on that level, soccer is not yet part of American hegemonic sports culture. Hmm. In other words, on that level, she didn't get it because the women are more accepted here. The, the women, I mean, you know, uh, I remember, you know, Julie Foudy has been a color commentator for years and she's accepted. In fact, what I find so interesting is that, again, the United States with on the gender dimension and soccer has been cutting edge precisely right. because, but it's, it's a dialectic. I'm a Hegelian. It's a dialectic. The women have been so excellent in America and so excelling also culturally precisely because the men have been secondary or because it's not taken up by a male world. The male world is taken up by the American Big Four, and there, trust me, they get a lot of flack. Yeah, absolutely. I'm I'm with you on that. Absolutely. Um, Beth Mowens gets a lot of flack when she did her first NFL or collegiate play-by-play game, and it was brutal. Every bit as much as these this German woman has gotten from the German fans in soccer, this World Cup, and the English woman has gotten from the English fans. 
uh, let's wind this thing up. This has been a lot of fun. It's always good to talk to you, my friend. Um, is there anything else on your radar? Uh, moving, you know, we have this game we're watching tomorrow here, Liverpool United. The club season comes uh, fairly soon. Um, what are you What are you paying attention to? It, it could just be in soccer stuff. Soccer stuff? Well, of course, I always pay uh, way too much attention to Man United. I <laughs> uh, pretty much watch more or less almost every one of their games. Um, and I'm worried, but that's, <laughs> you don't want to hear that. Jose Mourinho uh, seems overly worried. I mean, given yeah, how much money he's got. No, no, I'm, I'm, I'm worried. I don't think we have the quality of players, I uh, fear to compete with now Liverpool and also Man City, but that's, uh, we can talk about this for another two hours. I but... will ask you one question about Paul Pogba because okay, we okay. saw a Pogba with France that seemed to really, not just because he won the World Cup, but to be a leader, to be very joyous about his, his football, to um, to do things, to approach things in a way that we haven't seen with Man United, where he often seems to be played in a different function at times. He's surly. He is, yeah, yeah. And he seems unhappy. Unhappy. Yeah, I agree. I, I you're, you're, uh, you're, um, causing me headaches here because <laughs> I wish he were because you, you know what's what's so very interesting is usually it's the other way around usually players are better in club than country there yeah. are some exceptions for example the great German player Miroslav Klose was always much better for the Mannschaft the National Mannschaft Germans Lucas Podolski was always Lok- much better with exactly <laughs> by the way, both the interest oh interesting by the way if you if we if you permit me this we could talk about them to, the two of them as opposed to Özil very interesting here are these two Polish Germans right. who by the way on the pitch spoke Polish to each other only and of course, they, they never posed with the Polish president, so we don't have the equivalent with Özil, but they never quite were, their Germanness was never as was never in doubt as Özil's is. Meaning, and this is so important, that ultimately the Turks' position in Germany is much more of the other yeah. than the Poles. Not that they love the Poles, but so the point, the the gap between Özil and Podolski and Miroslav Kose, who actually spoke Polish in the German national team on the pitch, right. which Özil did not speak Turkish to Gundogan, is a, shows you again my point about how this is ultimately a very very troubling form of race, race racism. Yeah. Uh, but back to, um, to to Pogba, I hope he would. Although I'm actually, but that's my only personal thing. I still have never really seen the great, great value that Pogba allegedly has. I just With his world record. Then yes, and, and also not even. And I don't even. I don't mean monetarily. Yeah. I still have never. Made, I've never seen him play for Juve. Or very rarely. He was very good with Juventus. Yeah, I've not, I haven't seen him uh, really. But I must say, even with this French team, uh, he was good. He was important, important leader. Um, but. In terms of his playing, I always find him too slow. Hmm. There's something about him that is too plodding for me, hmm. uh, too slow. But that's my own personal. If he, let me put it this way: as a United fan, were he to play as well as he played for uh, uh, Les Bleus, I would be ecstatic. Yeah. Um, now, why he isn't, I have no idea. I don't know what's going on. Whether it's a form of uh, the coaching, or whether it's a form of uh, 
I, I, what, what do I know? I'm just a fan. I mean, I'm just, a, you know, I, 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 don't, I don't know these things. Um, so, you know, I, I, I worry about, I mean, I worry about United, about the U.S. I worry about who, who our next coach will be. On the men's side. Yeah, on the men. Oh, I'm sorry, on the men's side, yeah. of course. On the men's side. And I really, really uh, hope that uh, Pulisic will become a megastar. And um, I actually hope that uh, you will find this odd, but I would actually even forgive him for going to Liverpool because I know that uh, there's some... I tell you why. I would love for him to play in the Premiership because the Premiership's viewership in the United States sure. is so much bigger than the Bundesliga's. And he would become a major American sports star. And I am absolutely convinced that in order for a sport and a team sport to really become culture meaning millions following it okay in a daily discussion when i study these sports actually i always study them in off season that's what matters to me to me a sport is culture when you talk about the trades and what will happen right. and why is this guy doing this and what is he eating for breakfast that's what's important not what happens on the field and for that to happen on the men's side, we also need some American stars. And so to me, it's so important to have Pulisic and maybe others, but right. certainly he has the making of becoming a major star. And you can only become a major star in the be among the best of the best. Okay. Well, and that's why it was a huge missed opportunity for him with missing uh, horrible. the World Cup. Well, I know we disagreed on this. I actually told you in an email that the, the our not making it to the Russian World Cup will set the U.S. back twenty years. No, and you you disagreed. I I hope you I hope you're right, and I hope I'm wrong. <laughs> but it was a horrible missed opportunity. Absolutely. Agreed on that. Agreed absolutely, on that. absolutely. Well, Andy Markovitz, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Planet Football Podcast. I'd like to thank Andy Markovitz as well as everyone at Cadence 13 and Sports Illustrated who supports this podcast. Please, if you like the pod, tell your friends, subscribe, like, and review it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. It really does help the cause if you do. And check out the 30-minute Planet Football video show hosted by me and Luis Miguel Echegaray on SITV. That's available on SI.TV, Amazon, and FuboTV. See you next time. Do you know about the Locked On Podcast Network? The number one daily sports podcast network. Locked On has a daily podcast on every NBA and NFL team, plus a growing lineup of college and MLB teams. You get a daily bite-sized podcast giving you the latest on your team from the local experts. Lakers fans, search Locked On Lakers. Cowboys fans, search Locked On Cowboys. Just search Locked On, your favorite team, on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts, or tell your smart speaker to play podcast Locked On, your favorite team. Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day.